His name is Heston Blumenthal. He's on a lifetime's mission to discover the secrets behind our relationship with cooking and eating. My name's Jay Taylor. I'll be your host for this adventure, along with our Fat Duck producer, James Winter. And on today's show, we are once again delving into the wonderful world of mushrooms, but this time with a very special guest, who is one of the world's leading mushroom scientists. But before we meet him, we must say hello to our own fungi, Heston Blumenthal. Hello, sir. Not mushrooming here for all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Because James is also in France with Heston, uh, but but metres away, but sounding like he's a distance away. Hello, James. Bonjour, tout le monde. Bonjour. All gathered round one microphone. It's very um, live aid. I'm quite impressed. It's uh, <laughs> put the headphone on one ear. So we basically had a we- spent a week together. We've just done something for um, some filming for Diageo for um, uh, Black and White's whiskey, uh, which is a step towards the bigger picture of looking at maybe doing drinks with vibrational energy, which. Uh, Jim and I will. We'll, I think there's there's lots of discussions that we've touched on, and we'll be having further down the line between us on this. Um, so we had a couple of days filming for that. We've done um, filmed Australian MasterChef. They they they've got their they did it once years ago, but they've got a celebrity MasterChef. So I set the challenge, um, and they'll kill me if I give anything away. However, it is to do with um, nostalgia, uh, and then we've been doing lots of recipe testing for the new book. So we've been we've, we've been we've been busy, productive, uh, and yeah, all very good. Thank you very much. Splendid. Even better now. Uh, I've got I was big mushroom Jim on the show. Yeah. So I asked Jim earlier how would he describe himself, and he he said uh, chemical engineer, fine diner, and mushroom scientist, which is a brilliant way to describe yourself. He's coming from Australia as well. Yeah. We, 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 do you know how we met? I haven't. I don't think I've actually told you the, the full story. We met in Thailand, and. We, uh, Jim and I met in, in Bangkok and we were planning on going to a, a mushroom farm basically to taste a whole range of kind of medicinal, medicinal mushrooms amongst other things. And Jim gave me, introduced me to the incredible world of the cordycep, which I will leave the expert to touch on that. But these basically are where, where caterpillars lay their eggs in the, in the, in in the, in the earth and, and, and they, a sort of a mushroom half of them grow into the caterpillar and then a mushroom forms and they were in we're in the in the car and, and uh, after these discussions about cordyceps jim hands me a cordyceps and i just i'm a bit like pac-man i just put things in my mouth as you know and then see what happens but alice in wonderland <laughs> i know something's going to happen i don't when i eat this but i don't know what anyway jim sort of looked at me with this sort of slightly gaping mouth i took so significantly more than 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 he was sort of suggesting. So we get <laughs> we get to this mushroom farm and we go through a mushroom tasting and I my body starts shaking. I'm wobbly. And it's like I'm having sort of palpitations. It's boiling hot, it's very humid, and we after the tasting we sat in they had a little shop. So I'm on a chair with my laying back with my feet on the desk. Jim is there, the 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 um the guy, the professor, he's a, uh, the mushroom expert, uh, is there, and 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 our friend who we met through uh, Busana, who's a who's also you know very eminent scientist, physicist, uh, and many other things, uh, in this room. While I'm trying to meditate to reduce my feeling of anxiety, but I had nothing to be anxious about, and then Jim 
pulls out, talk about random. I and mean, this, this sums up our relationship. Jim then decides <laughs> to pull out of his bag a karaoke microphone. <laughs> so that we're singing, we're singing, we're doing karaoke and I'm trying to sing. And I can't sing at the best of times, but my body was shaking that much. I was like, that was our sort of, you know, an overview of our first, uh, our first connection. But also in the car, we realized that we had so many shared beliefs about, basically about evolution in the universe. From, from theoretical physics to the evolution of the gut and the brain and our emotions and, and, and all of this stuff. So, um, yeah, that was, that, that, was our, that was our kickoff meeting. So it was truly memorable. So, hello, Jim. Welcome. <laughs> you, you met Heston by getting a completely hammered on mushrooms in Thailand, which sounds like a perfect introduction to him. And, uh, and after four years together in Thai prison, <laughs> here you are now on our, on our podcast. Uh, first of all, can I ask you, before Heston has, I'm sure, loads of questions and discussion points, Mushroom scientist. I've not heard of one of those before. What does that mean? What do you do, sir? Give me an idea of your, your daily life in the world of mushrooms. Hello. Thanks. Thank you for inviting me on. Hello, Jay. Hello, James. And hello, Heston. Um, yeah, so I have been colonized by mushrooms, I would say. Um, starts way back with the whole chemical engineering thing and fine dining thing, which I won't go into my whole backstory, but... Chemical engineering, chemical engineering and fine dining was my beginning to career, and I did that for about 12 years. Now, my head chef at the time, Bruce Auden at Bigo on the Banks in San Antonio, Texas, realized that I was a very um, scientific-minded chef and uh, handed me a book called On Food and Cooking by Harold McGee. And in the introductory chapter, it mentions Heston. It mentions a few other things. But I, I hadn't really found anyone to sort of emulate or, or follow. So I started really idolizing and emulating Heston. So that's like, there's a little backstory. Um, so scientists and chemi- chemicals and, and also food, these are all things that I'm passionate about. I ended up trying to get a visa to come to Australia, and it took a really long time. I, I got to work on a mushroom farm um, out in California while, while we were waiting for this visa. So I just decided to stop chemical engineering and fine dining altogether and go work and live on a mushroom farm. And that sort of set it all off for me. So this was in the North Bay area of San Francisco, and uh, we were on a Japanese bottle farm. So it's like push-button wow. efficiency. You uh, essentially plug and play and watch mushrooms grow in carpets and on clockwork timing and things like that. And this had me. It had me for my engineering brain. We grew six different culinary varieties of mushrooms and 47 different nutraceutical varieties. So those are medicinal, right? Now, that got to the, that spoke to the chemistry guy in me. So now it's like putting all these things together. And we're in the North Bay area of San Francisco. It rains nine months out of the year. There's always mushrooms around. This is the Northern Hemisphere, which you guys get to be in, uh, and, and you, you would be aware that there is a long history of safe use of mushrooms up there, um, and a lot of people in the community were experts on knowing what mushrooms you could go find, where to find them, and what time of year, and I wanted to do that too. So I ended up learning about the evolutionary <laughs> history of many fungi, about the biology of them, and where to go, and hunted some of the most expensive mushrooms on the planet and found out lots of little interesting stories about the ecology of mushrooms and anyway i was colonized 
I was, uh, I guess that's my cosmic aha moment happened there. I knew I was always going to do mushrooms, do something with mushrooms from there. So it, that was a couple of years there in San Francisco. The visa finally came through. I came over to Australia and then went and finished a degree in agricultural science at the University of Melbourne with a focus on mycology. Now, you ask me, what's a mushroom scientist? Um, it is the science of mushrooms, and unfortunately, here in Australia, there's not, there's not a massive program because there's no long history of safe use of a lot of fungi around here, so I kind of had to fit it together myself and take a lot of plant science and soil science and water science and sort of work it out. Um, ended up working on my own mushroom farms. I started a couple of farms selling the mushrooms into the fruit and veg wholesale market, then ended up consulting to a few different farms here and there and around the world, working on the largest mushroom farm in the Southern Hemisphere in their spawn lab. So that's growing all the seed material for mushrooms. Spawn lab, what a sounding place. That's an interesting thing to tell your friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's actually the very first thing. Whenever I saw an ad for a spawn lab supervisor i was like <laughs> if for nothing else i want the title because i want to tell people that i'm a spawn supervisor maybe i don't know so yeah it, it, it it's a lot of things it's cultivation it's understanding the the actual ecology it's understanding the nourishment and and seeing from raw material right through to end product, culinary and nutraceutical mushrooms, and then spicing them up by fermenting the fruiting bodies and really getting good access to the medicinal stuff that's on the inside and all of that. It's understanding fermentation and mycelium and then going out and spreading the word as much as possible. So that brings me to what I'm currently doing in Fable. Uh, it's a crossroads of all those things. I get to literally make meaty, delicious food out of mushrooms using every bit of knowledge I've learned over the years and do it in ways that that challenge the you know traditional uh, understanding of how you should do things and this is yeah i heard i heard heston talking about it on your previous mushroom podcast where it actually got a little bit viral whenever i said well you've been doing it wrong and and here i am chal challenging larue's gastronomique telling you should you should boil mushrooms first right so anyway uh it's a big long answer to your question and i'd love to crack into my version of the story of how it came to be that I met Heston, how we did what we did, because I've told this to about mm, 450 people over the course of this year doing mushroom tours, because it's a really interesting story. I've got, I'm going to, there's one little thread of question, questioning for you, which will come back to colonization. But before that, I would love to hear, because I, I would love to, well, maybe toe-curlingly sit and listen to your, <laughs> uh, your side of our Rendezvous. I had a, a chef career for a good 12 years, and I emulated Heston Blumenthal. He was a, essentially like, I don't know, I don't know. You, you look to somebody and, and follow what they kind of do. And I, I guess that's what I kind of did as a chef. I was a very scientific approach, and I had somebody to sort of look out for and follow. Somehow, some way, I ended up getting into the mushroom world and becoming this level of expertise that people seek out in the world. And I had some knowledge of 
um, and a Thai professor. We got really close because we share a passion for mushrooms, and he had invited me over to Thailand for his son's wedding. And I took them a gift of cordyceps for their wedding because I think cordyceps are one of the most, well, it's the most interesting thing I've ever found on this planet. Um, but I took them cordyceps, and I also knew ahead of time that Heston was a friend of Anon, the uh, Thai professor. And Anon said, well, when you come over here, you might get a chance to meet Heston. Well, not only did I get a chance to meet him, I got the chance to be his guide because he was about to take a tour of all these mushroom farms that I had just been given a tour of. And I knew everything that was going on there. Anon, he's, he's a Thai professor. He speaks really good English, but he says, you can speak so much better. You can captivate Heston. So yeah, we'll all go together, but you can be the guide. And here I am. Like, consider this. It's like a 20-year relationship in my mind already. I get to meet this guy and not only meet him, but be the guy giving him information, be his expert. So this to me is like, all right, this is like tippy top of life you can get. Where do we go? So we stop at, a, at this coffee shop that we had stopped at on the way out to a mushroom farm, but we didn't go into the coffee shop. This is where we stopped three days ago on the way out to this three-hour drive to a mushroom farm. And I figured, yeah, that's a cool place to meet Heston in this quirky little cool coffee shop. And no, we took a left and went into McDonald's. And, and <laughs> inside McDonald's, there's Heston Blumenthal, like the best chef that I've ever known and, and the guy that I've followed. And he's over there like, oh, my God, it's McDonald's. You're Heston. You know what? But I tried to play it cool. I walked up as if, yeah. Can I just pause you for a second there? Because... Winding back, how did we share this connection with Professor Anon? How? Well, I went to the Maldives on the, the, I had this idea to get investors to buy an island in the Maldives and put a lab in it. Why? Because there's an element of the Maldives, which is very, it's got all these very smart, fancy hotels, but alcohol is banned, but not in the hotels. They've got a very, very serious plastic issue. So I went to help some schools picking plastic on an island, on a couple of islands. There was no one on the island. We got, there was about 20 of us with big, with, with big sacks. And we went into the, you, the beaches were beautifully clean. You went into the undergrowth. Oh, TV controls. There were plastic wash, washing baskets. We collected so much plastic. And um, they had a recycle. The place we stayed had a recycling, an amazing recycling um, plant. And two of the 20 people were two professors from Thailand. One was Busana who became uh, um, a great friend and is an amazing scientist. And then Dr. Professor Anon, who's Busana is one of Busana's best friends, who Jim's talking about. So that's how I met. Then Busana came to spend some time with France. We, we talked about a lot of big, big things. And then, and then I went to Thailand because of Busana, who was best friends with Anon, who's the professor that Jim's talking about. That's, that's the sort of, that was the lead up. And Busana is obsessed with McDonald's. Now I've <laughs> been in McDonald's in the, in the last 10 years, I don't know, maybe a handful of times. And, and it's been, we've been with my family or some kids. So I'm sitting in McDonald's because that's what Busana, this, you know, who's obsessed or we're also obsessed with mushrooms, but he likes <laughs> McDonald's. So, sorry, Jim, back over to you. No stress, because that really puts a, a good like light around wh why are we going here. At least it had a purpose, right? So, <laughs> it, it, it had a purpose as it being a really cool story, too, me meeting one of the best chefs in the world <laughs> at McDonald's. So, I go in, 
and we sit down and they actually have food and they order food and all of that stuff. But you know what? For me, the and, and this has only happened a couple of times in life. It happened when I met my wife. The world sort of just kind of paused and it was just us, just me and her and nothing else going on. And it was as if no one else was around. And we've sat there for 45 minutes with cold uh, sausage McMuffins or something. I don't know. Like they were just there. Um <laughs> And and they were like, okay, guys, it's a three-hour drive. We got to go. We, we have to get in the cars and go. Okay, sweet. Now we get in the cars and go. And it just, it doesn't stop. We are on and we're talking. As soon as we get in the car, Heston's like, oh, I just got yeah. this Tibetan singing bowl. Let's put some water in here and bang on it. Here, I've changed the shape of water. <laughs> and here I am sharing a singing bowl cup of water with Heston. It's just like we're intimate. We're best friends already. And then we're like, okay, well, what yeah. else? Well, let's put the McDonald's Coca-Cola in there and change the shape of that so anyway the continue the continue the conversation continues we talk about everything the spirals and the shapes and the formations and the vibrations and then i get to talking about cordyceps so i'll tell you the, the story that i told the heston that got him so eager to just eat one of these things so now cordyceps sinensis is the most famous uh, cordyceps in the world. It's known and it has a, a, a few thousand years of written history in traditional Chinese medicine. It's the most valuable ingredient in traditional Chinese medicine. Now in 1995, some Chinese athletes won some world games and got gold medals in events they weren't known to be proficient at getting gold medals at and the rest of the world accused them of doping. They were investigated, found not to be doping, but only to be using cordyceps sinensis. So this puts this product on the world stage. So that was 1995, and the value was around two to $3,000 a kilo. Come to the turn of the century, pharmaceutical companies are cottoning on. Western research is going in there, and you find that there are, about, there are four target therapeutic compounds in this thing that make it super functional to your body. Uh, it oxygen increased by... Oxygen uptake increased by about 40% and ATP production by about 50%. That's the body's energy currency. So this is really good for endurance and stamina, right? Uh, really good for athletes. And the Chinese proved it. Now, these four target therapeutic compounds for those scientific loving listeners, adenosine, that's a nucleoside that your body uses in its cellular mechanics for certain operations in a day-to-day -day basis. Then there's cordycepin, which is 3'-deoxyadenosine. It's a similar thing. It's an analog of this nucleoside, slightly different structurally, and it does a slightly different thing. But Really good stuff to work in your cellular mechanics when you have the availability. Then there is cordycepic acid, which is mannitol. It's a sugar alcohol that's functional. And then there are functional polysaccharides called beta-glucans. So there are four target therapeutic compounds in there. And this is what cordyceps sinensis has. Now, I brought cordyceps gunnii. It's an Australian one. It's much, much, much bigger. The cordyceps sinensis from China are tiny, maybe about 35 millimeters long, 45 at the longest. Um, now, the Australian ones can go up to 800 millimeters long. The history of those things has no long history of use here. Uh, I came over from the States with a background of knowledge in fungi, and I knew about cordyceps, and I that's one of the very first fungi I found here. Everyone listening, while listening to this podcast, it might be worth just Googling cordyceps 
and have a look. Yeah, definitely. There is nothing on this planet that looks like a cordyceps. They are they are arresting looking. I remember you brought a box out when I came to see you in France. They go and try yeah. that. It's like you're kidding. That was Jim's box. That was the box Jim gave oh, me. Oh, I see. So that's that's where yeah. the circle squares goes. Yeah. Well, go and try yeah. this thing. I was like, okay. He said, but be careful. It can give you a straight. <laughs> After I tried it, mind. He was like, oh yeah. By the way, you shouldn't eat too much of it. I mean, yeah. You should tell me that before I try it. Sorry, Jim. Back over to you. So go on. Explain more about these ridiculously looking looking things which are how much are they worth now then well i'll 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 sort of get the long way to that and and they're they're massively valuable and i'll tell you all about that so the australian one the australian cordyceps gunia is really long Uh, it has all the same four target therapeutic compounds in it but no one knew this in the beginning it's the very one of the very first fungi i found when i was here it was just a really cool story to tell people and i'll tell you that little really cool story now so it's australian native and it requires both or three things it requires a specific tree a specific moth that needs that tree and the fungus must be present so the mother moth of the oxycanus species comes along lays her eggs on the bark of this specific tree the larvae are wood boring they go inside and then dig their eat their way down to the roots where they live for the next few years getting quite large as big as my my finger sometimes and now these are related to the witchetty grubs if you if you're over here in australia the indigenous people eat these widgety grubs they're very large very fatty very delicious right so um, what happens in the life cycle is that they will be triggered to dig a tunnel to the surface so that they can escape and become a moth but they don't just dig out and become a moth they dig a tunnel to the surface then they line it with silk and go back down they metamorphosize so they form their chrysalis they change into the moth and then they just wiggle their way up this silk lined tunnel when they erupt out the top they'll spread their wings and they'll fly away unless the spore from the cordyceps fungus is around and it'll just get on them it doesn't have to get in breathed in or or eaten it just has to touch them and then it'll exert exert a massive pressure and dump its way inside and just fill fill up with genetic material work its way to the brain and then have a biochemical control over the beast it is truly the zombie fungus because it creates zombies it drives them around and then has it do its bidding before it gets to the perfect location where it'll then kill then digest and then fruit a mushroom out of the thing yes so this is truly the zombie fungus and (laughs) these target therapeutic compounds come out of the enzymes that are breaking down this actual live insect right so that's where you get the target therapeutic compounds and they happen to be present in the cordyceps gunnii from australia but i didn't know it until eventually uh, several years after being here i was working in the fruit and veg wholesale market buying wild mushrooms off of pickers one guy had a kilo of these things in the back of his car and i said what are you doing with those? He said, I sell them to this Chinese guy in the city the last 25 years. He's putting them on his menu. He absolutely loves them. That for me was enough history of safe use to give him a try. And that's when I sent them <laughs> off for, to China to get them tested out for these four target therapeutic compounds. And they're there. So I tell Heston this story. That's the story I told Heston while we were on this three-hour journey. And before I could get to the point, imagine I just heard this from Jim. Something that's edible that I'd never heard of before. And I've just been absolutely, completely entranced and asphyxiated with, 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 with Jim's build up to this. 
it was inevitable you were going to put something in your mouth at that point. You had to eat it. Whatever happened, you had to eat it. Even if I told you it was toxic, you'd be like, give it here, I don't care. <laughs> That's the kind of feeling that I got whenever I said, wait a second, whenever he crammed the whole thing in his mouth. I said, hold on. <laughs> now, it's not a common thing for this thing to be overdosed on because at this time, it was about $200,000 a kilo worth of material Right. Uh, that's what the material was worth in 2014. And it was around one hundred and eighty thousand dollars a kilo by the time I actually met up with Eston. So I was like, it's not common for people to overdose on this thing. I'd be building for it afterwards. <laughs> and there are some insanely wealthy Chinese folks out there who like to show status and throw a few of these things in their coffee or tea or soup. And then they end up getting vertigo. And that's what I said. If it's going to manifest as anything, Eston, you, you'll end up with a vertigo. And I don't know for how long, but you just, you know, you ate quite a bit. But you know what? You're, you are, in my mind, like me. And I have never had this ill effect. And I've had many of the things before. I, I took, you know, you're, you, you eat fermented things. You pick things up off the ground. You, you're, yeah, you're not going to be sensitive to this. Go ahead. And you know he ate another stick. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, but... <laughs> He ate another stick after that. And not only that, I gave him another tea of the thing because he was just eating them raw. I was like, well, this is how you would normally have it. Here's a tea. For, for, for anyone listening, this is a really interesting test of your own taste, whether you think you now want one or you don't want one. You've just been told they'll give you vertigo. They cost £200,000 per God knows how much. And they come out, they're basically a zombie-controlled moth that you get to eat. If you now thinking, oh, I'd love to try one of those, then you're probably quite close to Heston in the way you think. So we get to this mushroom farm. I take Heston around. We do the tasting thing. And, and Heston said it was extremely hot. And I've heard him say it a lot. He has a very sweaty head. I could see it. And I said, hey, Heston, you know, let's go into this mushroom growing room, which is a little bit cooler. And I turn around and he's literally walking backwards. And says, I think I got vertigo. <laughs> and I know he's got vertigo. And he's just eating more cordyceps than I've seen anybody eat and then have an ill effect. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, And I can't offer any comfort. But I'm certain that the way that this is going, there's some jail time in, in my future. Because I might have just killed the guy. I don't, I, you know. You can't and, kill him. He's unkillable. Boy's got an iron inside. You're not going to kill him with these things. You have to go a lot harder than that. I did feel, I did feel like Alice in Wonderland. From when I got up from tasting the mushrooms to go to the, when we walking to the, it's like my feet were half a mile away from my head. And I thought, oh, I need binoculars to see my feet. It was straight out of Alice. I'm going to put sort of three points that I think are, connect, that are connection, uh, that connect here that have all really been inspired and come from Jim that, um, that, uh, and then I'll hand over, I'll hand over to, to, to you, Jim. One was, he spoke at the beginning of this about the use the word colonization. So that's effectively what this fungi can do. It can get in things and, and, and actually colonize it some, another body from the inside out. And so that was my colonization link to then this question about, did we cultivate wheat? Or did we attract us to cultivate wheat? I mean, the chances are it's, 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 it's cause and effects and effects and cause, or there's many ways of, 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 of explaining it. So this is really behind the name Fable, which is Jim and Chris's company that I'm now involved in, um, where it's exploring, it's using, using the, 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 just so many of the magical, wonderful properties of fungi and mycelium and mushrooms, where their behavior also... Um, mirrors or human human 
behavior on mass, the way we move around, is actually been shown to, to, to mirror the movement, that, the way that, that the fungi kind of operate. So they were, that was my sort of line of, wow. of um, uh, the three connected questions that I was going to ask you, Jim. Uh, well, if I go back to the beginning, we will be here for a long time, but I do feel like yes. we need to go back to the beginning just to get one major point across. So let's go back to the beginning. Back to the beginning when the earth cooled down enough for liquid water to stay on the surface then life could evolve, right? But it required the water to do such things. So this was archaea, it was extremophile, all that. Come a few billion years later, and you get up to multicellular organisms, and there's a plethora of them, but they all require being in the water. Fungi was the pioneer that could come out of the water and actually produce the right amount of chemicals and do the right mechanical things to actually start carving out rocks and mine minerals for its nutrition. And it had enough water with it that it could live outside of the water. Fungi got a 500 million year foothold on the earth before anything else really got a chance to make a deal with it. <laughs> you get algae coming along about 450 million years ago that move out with fungi wrapping them up in a nice little package and that's lichen lichen come around and they are really the greeners of the earth they come out they start dissolving the mineral in the rock the algae is producing this is a photosynth photosynthetic cyanobacteria it's producing sugars and the fungi is harvesting the sugars so it really made the first well they're the first farmers now if you think about this fungi is the gatekeeper, is the shepherd to bring everything out. And this is now laying the groundwork for making soil and organic matter in the soil. So all the plants now are gatekept from becoming able to grow out here by fungi allowing it to happen. The fungi wraps up around the root, gets inside and harvests the sugar from the photosynthetic products and just gives it enough water and enough minerals to stay alive and grow and keep giving it sugar. So there's no question that it was all cultivated, but you get to the higher level organisms and fungi are still driving things around. Of course, they're the ones that get into the brain of the cordyceps. But I mean, if I ask you the question, what do termites eat? What's, what's your answer, Jay? Well, I would have always imagined that termites ate wood or, or sort of things that live on the wood. Is that right? Kind of, yes. So what they do is they, they chew wood, they take wood back to their colony and feed it to the mother fungus. So you tell me, the mother fungus that gets to stay back in the colony, that gets caretakers to take care of it, to keep it fed, <laughs> is it the fungus that's actually benefiting here, or is it the termites? And I realize it's a mutualistic benefit, but who set it up? If we know that fungi were the ones that came out first and basically care took and let everything happen, it's my belief, of course, that the fungi are getting the termites to go get the wood, bring it back home, and yeah... The, the fungus then decomposes the wood. It's the only organism on the planet that can do it. They didn't just set up the root structures and keep things alive. Whenever that life cycle ended, that stuff falls down, fungi then go in there and mine out all the nutrients that are in the carbon. And I guarantee you, carbon-carbon bonds are a lot easier to get into than those mineral things. So they just made themselves snacks laying everywhere that if they didn't eat it, they just stack up and no more life could happen, right? So you've got these guys figuring it all out before anyone else gets a chance. <laughs> so there, I think it's obvious that the fungi are getting the termites to run out and bring them wood. They'll, they'll, they'll digest the wood, turn it into sugars, and then 
the exudates, the mushroom sweat, the termites will come along and drink that and eat some fungi and keep themselves nice and healthy. And of course, you'd think that they're the ones eating the wood, but they're not. Brilliant. This idea, it's, it's like the cordyceps thing. The fungus is controlling creatures by giving them what they want by, and, and propagating itself. Jim, what's the, tell us the, um, the, the largest living thing on the planet. Yeah. It is, it is an armillaria fungus. It's in the northwestern U.S., 2,500 hectares. And it's, 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 I think its nickname is the humongous fungus. So it's a, you think it's a forest, but actually yeah, yeah, underneath yeah. the soil is one fungus. That one fungus is attached to all the roots of those trees. It's essentially a rolling, well, it takes a rolling stock of what it's got. And you can see this from space because... It's an armillaria fungus, which this is one that when we talk about there are mycorrhizal mushrooms, they, they attack, they don't attack, they attach to the roots and they have a mycorrhizal symbiotic relationship. Then you have decomposer fungi. Those are the ones that eat dead and decaying organic material, but they don't kill anything. But then you have parasites. Armillaria is a parasite. So it's actually going to slowly kill all those trees that it's attached to and it will consume them when they're dead and this is why you can see it from outer space because every one of those trees that has this fungal parasite is affected in the way it grows so they have a different color to the same trees that are not infected so you're painting a an awe-inspiring understanding of mushrooms the history and also the scale of them it doesn't sound very appetizing. How, where do we come into this as humans wanting to eat these things? We love the stuff that's on the inside of mushrooms. We just don't realize that we do. Um, mushrooms are really high in glutamic acid. They're really high in five prime uh, mononucleotides. These are flavor compounds. And the reason is because mushrooms are, evolutionarily speaking, much more closely related to animals than they are to plants. So here is where I challenge all of the classical French cooking technique on mushrooms. Now, mushrooms have a polysaccharide cell wall, just like plants do, and that's the only similarity. That's where it ends, okay? So the polysaccharide around plant cells is cellulose. The polysaccharide that surrounds um, mushrooms is chitin. These are two very different polysaccharides. They have different physical characteristics. So now, very easily speaking about it, if you go into the French cooking technique, you start by putting mushrooms into oil, hot fat. And what happens mechanically is that you're breaking the cells down from the outside in. Now, yes, you can do this, but what happens is in the middle, those cells are not broken apart, so they keep this mechanical structure kind of rigid. So when a cell opens up, the 90% moisture content from the inside steams away really quickly in the oil and the oil gets sucked right back up into the cell. What this eventually does is it clogs up all the nutrients that are kind of in the middle and you end up with a deliciously seared and crispy outer skin that, of course, you've added more butter or added more tasty fat because uh, you're cooking with this tasty French fat and you end up with a garlic and butter delivery device that has a crispy external bit, but it's sluggy and rubbery on the inside and you didn't access any of that nutrition. Now, this is why I say boiling is the right way to go. Now, anyone would think that if you overboil it, you're going to turn it to mush. That's what happens with plants, but not with this polysaccharide, not with chitin. Cellulose falls apart at 100 C, but in water, you're buffered at 100 C. 
chitin doesn't fall apart, but the cells rupture and they rupture uniformly. So what happens is you get an extract into your water that has all of these really good, powerful glutamic acid, five prime flavor uh, mononucleotides, all this flavor stuff that your body does have an emotive response to and you want it. There's also all these volatile chemicals, these eight carbon molecules that go into the air when you're cooking, and they tell you, they alert you to the presence of this highly nutritive substance, right? So to, to talk about it, we've now boiled it to get it uniformly broke down, and now we have an extract that has all this stuff in it. But what we want to do is we want to modify that just like we modify any other animal meat. And, and this is because we have humans have a long standing evolutionary relationship with fire. When fire treats our food, we have an emotive response to it. I can talk to you about cauliflower and you just think cauliflower. But if I talk to you about roasted cauliflower or seared steak or toasted toast, anything better, whenever you add this fire or cooking element to it, right? So... That is all through the Mylard reaction. And I know I'm in good company here talking about that. Browning things makes things taste better. Now, to do that Mylard reaction, you need three things. You need amino acids, you need reducing sugars, and you need, re and you need heat. Now, I've already told you we're buffered with heat with all that water, and the Mylard doesn't happen till just above 100, and it starts around 105 and 110. Now, you, what you do is you get that water, reduce it out, and you just wait until the mushrooms are perfectly cooked because they're never going to overcook. The chitin never falls apart. You could literally boil mushrooms for days and they're not going to fall apart. You need to boil them until they're nice and soft and they'll only ever get to the perfect texture. I tell you this, I challenge you, put all types of different mushrooms in a pot and boil them for a while, then boil it out and you'll see they all have their own individual textures and you haven't made them mushy and you haven't blended them together. So that's just one way to let a mushroom express its actual texture, which is a really meaty, delicious al dente morsel in most cases, right? So you do this, you get the extract, you evaporate it away, and now you've got that concentrated, very high flavored liquid that you can now get the Mylard reaction on. You take a little bit of water and wash it off your pan back up onto the mushrooms, let that evaporate away, then you go in with a very small amount of oil. So typically, if you started with a couple of hundred grams of mushrooms, you would have put about a quarter cup of oil in there by the end of it. In this, you start with 500, even a kilo of mushrooms, and you boil it out, reduce it down, and you'll only add a couple of tablespoons of oil by the end of it. You're only letting the oil treat the outside and getting delicious, beautiful caramelization. And then you just hit it with your aromats, and you have the most tasty, most delicious, meaty, delicious food because it has the amino acid profile very closely related to animal proteins. The same amino acids are there, and you've done the same sort of Mylard reaction there. So you, when you taste it, it tastes like actually eating an animal protein. Wow. Well, that is certainly... A journey to the center of a mushroom. That's amazing detail on that front. That's fascinating. All the work Jim's Jim's been doing on on the actual fable. You can you can buy the the actual um, it's the, the pieces packets of uh, of of, fab of the of fable. I don't even want to call it. Let's call it a meat replacement. But it's unique, and I love the fact that you can you you could make a you can make a, a ragu, a chili, a, a burger. You could make a wrap. You could do. I mean, you also it basically. As Jim's just explained about the mush cooking mushrooms for a long time, you can do anything with this that really, in terms of stews and stuff like that, and more. And I love the fact that if you don't tell somebody who loves meat, who thinks they need meat, 
and the, it's as satisfying. But then it becomes even more satisfying when you know you've just, you haven't eaten any meat. It's incre- it's, it is incredible. Well, our, our first flagship product at Fable was a, a, a meaty, delicious food made out of mushrooms that replicated the taste and texture of slow-cooked meat. And that's done really well, and it's, uh, it's been in many restaurants around, uh, around Australia and now even over in the UK, Singapore, and over in the US. Um, our next product that's come out of the pipeline is a delicious, meaty Fable burger. It's made mainly with shiitake mushrooms, but it also has a different, another mushroom in there called the agaricus, the button mushroom. Uh, and a short list of really all-natural ingredients. It's really meaty. It's really nice to eat. Um, it's it's really exciting that I got to work with Heston on doing it. Oh, fabulous. How exciting. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you ever so much for being here on the podcast. That was truly fascinating and a real journey to the center of mushrooms there. Loads of things coming out of that. Chopping onions can lead to some deeply rewarding, precious moments in life. And... Um, and Jim, you're in some. You're, you're in a bunch of those. So thank you so much. You've 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 been where well, you are. Amazing. Lovely. Thank you everyone for listening. We will be back with more adventures inside food next week. Heston. Until then, see you soon. See you next time. Mm-hmm.